few months ago, a friend of mine had uh, a very uh, unique sort of front row opportunity to see the hand of God uh, displayed in an unusual way. His name is David. He's a church planner in San Diego. And just by way of general observation, church planning is enormously difficult work. If God calls you to church planning, you might want to hold out for San Diego or, you know, Key West or someplace like that. But David uh, is a church planner, and uh, about two years ago, he suddenly uh, had a desire to get a t-shirt from the Minnesota Kicks soccer team. Now, the the Minnesota Kicks is a a long-defunct, bankrupt uh, soccer team and part of a bankrupt league, but he grew up, uh, David grew up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and had a chance to ride his bike to these games and was quite taken by them, in particular sort of drawn to a guy by the name of Alan Wiley, the star of the team, number nine. And, and uh, so, you know, David said, reasons I didn't really understand, you don't understand these things, I thought, you know, it'd be really fun to have one of these jerseys. So he went out to buy one, only to discover that uh, no one made them. They didn't exist. He went on eBay, he did everything he could. There are no Minnesota Kicks jerseys out there. But he said, I, I really wanted to have this jersey, so he said, I thought about it and realized that I knew someone uh, in the apparel industry, so I went to her and said, I want to pay you to make this jersey. And he had pictures from old Sports Illustrated, there's the jersey, will you make this? And she said, well, no, I can't because there's trademark issues that get brought in here, and this would be illegal, and I got a business, and no, I'm not going to do it. So he said, so I spent months tracing the history, finding the ownership, securing written legal permission from the former owner of the Minnesota Kicks to make one jersey. And he said, I went back to her, and she made it. He says, I won't tell you how much this cost me. I've been hiding this from my wife. He said, it was not an inexpensive thing. And she sort of looked at me and said, what are you doing this for? He goes, I got to have it. He said, well, then once I got it, um, he said, and looked at it, and remembered that, uh, you know, this was the 70s, the era of leisure suits, and I looked at this bright, sort of gaudy orange shirt trimmed in baby blue. He said, I thought, well, I'm never going to wear it. I just had to have it. So he says, I put it in my dresser, and there it sat for however long. And then one time, he was going to Minneapolis to speak. He speaks all over the the country. He's going to Minneapolis to speak at a church convention. And he said, and I decided to pack it. And he says, then that day that I was supposed to speak, he says, I showed up at the the event dressed in appropriate business attire. He said, but uh, after lunch, just before I was supposed to go on, I went into the bathroom and put on this shirt. And he says, I got up. And he says, I gave my, my talk, a couple thousand people there. I spoke, said nothing at all about the fact that I have on this bright orange 1970s Minnesota Kicks soccer jersey. He says, well, as soon as I was done speaking, he goes, this guy sort of runs up onto the platform and he says, where did you get that jersey? They don't make those jerseys. Nobody makes those jerseys. Where did you get that jersey? In particular, where did you get my jersey. It was Alan Wiley. And Alan explained 
that he had come into the talk late because he had sat in the car wrestling with the idea of whether or not he was going to go into the meeting. He had come to faith in Christ a year to the day before that. But he had not really seen a whole lot of change in his life. He says he would not ever seen God answer prayer. So he says, okay, God, I need you to show up. I want you to, I want you to give me a sign. And then he comes in, and there is the speaker wearing his jersey. The story actually goes on from there because a couple days later, uh, David was preaching at a church, and he told this story. And he said after he finished the story, Alan Wiley, who was at that church, he had never been at that church before. The only reason he was at that church that day is because he overslept and had missed the service at his church he was going to go to. He didn't know that David was going to be there. But he then hears the story. David had not told him that two years earlier he had felt this compulsion to start finding this shirt. And when he heard that, he, he was really overwhelmed. But he stood up in the service as this story is being told. He goes, I'm right here. right? I'm, I'm, I'm here. And he goes, the place erupted. Well, I was talking to David uh, just a couple weeks ago, and he said, you know, that event has really rocked my world. He goes, because I have to look back and see God moving in my life. He goes, two years ago, a year before Alan Wiley has even come to faith, two years before he prays this prayer, God lays on my heart that I have to get this shirt. And he says, and I do it, but I don't know why. And then I put it on, and I don't know why. And I see God's hand moving in this powerful way. And he says, I'm here to tell you, Mike, if God tells me to build an ark, I'm building. <laughs> you do things even when you don't always understand them. Well, today I want to talk about the God of the orange jersey, about the fact that God has a plan. We don't always see it, but there is a plan. He has an agenda. He has a will. This is uh, the fifth service, or the fifth sermon in this series on the Lord's Prayer. It is the third when we have been looking at the, the six petitions that make up the Lord's Prayer. This is the third and final look at one of the petitions that you would say is on God's side of the ledger. Next week we shift over and we begin to look at those things that we are praying in a much more temporal sense. Food and forgiveness and that kind of thing. Here, what we are being instructed to do, the, the, the prayer here is the other two petitions that we've looked at have been. It's, it's in the imperative passive voice, this weird sort of uh, grammatical structure in which we we are as close as we can to giving a command to God, giving a command. We're saying in, in an imperative voice, God, glorify yourself. God, bring your kingdom. And here it's God, do your will. We want you, God, to do your will, to be God. We want it to be your agenda, not our agenda. Thy will be done. Well, what we are doing here is not surprising. It shouldn't uh, in any sense um, shock us that Christ would tell us 
that our lives are to be oriented around God's agenda because his life was so clearly organized around the will of the Father. We see him at various junctures stating as much. When he had not eaten and the disciples were worried about him and they came to him and they said, you need to eat, he responded by saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's how I have energy to go forward. And then at a different juncture, he's speaking and the crowds are big and they come to him and they go, Jesus, your mother and brother can't get to see you. And he says, who are my mother and brother? I tell you the truth. Everyone who does the will of my father is my mother and brother. And then at that uh, absolutely critical last hour before the, the chain of events that would lead up to his, his persecution, when he has he uh, already been betrayed, and, but he's kneeling there in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, he says, you know, Father, I, I don't want what's coming next. It is not my desire to go forward with this, but... Not my will, but your will be done. We often think of prayer as being an opportunity to go to God and tell him what it is that we want. And there's nothing wrong with that. God knows what we want. There's nothing wrong with with going to God and expressing our, our desires or our needs. But clearly, what Christ is teaching us is that part of what we need to pray is, but God, what I really want is for your will to be done. Well, most sermons on the will of God tend to focus on how it is that we might discover the will of God at some critical juncture in our life. The road is forked. We don't know which way to go. The issue is important. Uh, We're running out of time. We're praying, God, tell me if I'm supposed to go left or right. Take this job or not. Buy this house, get married, whatever. I I want you, this is important, and I want you to to tell me what it is that I'm supposed to do. I I understand that those are burning, desperate moments in our lives, and I want to say a little bit about that. But I actually want to step back from that issue and, and look at the will of God a little bit more holistically, and to that end, I have four points that I want to make. Number one is that God has a will. Uh, Life is not random. God has a plan. History has a destiny. The events that are unfolding before us have a purpose and an eventual end. And I say that not just because of the story uh, of, of the orange jersey. I say that because when we read Scripture, we see how things are woven together throughout history. We see how God sets the foundation and makes the promises thousands of years earlier and then builds and builds with events that seem to be random, but then they all come together at various times. And you look back at how He has woven things together in absolute amazement. I say that God has a will because Christ teaches us that God has a will. And I say that God has a will because we are instructed to pray that his will would be done. That is, that the the domain, the realm in which God's wishes are honored expands. His kingdom, right? Because we said that the kingdom is that area where, where people honor the wishes of the king. So what we are praying here is that his kingdom would expand. Well, obviously... It's clear that there is a kingdom. God has a will. We are instructed to focus on it. Point number one, God has a will. Point number two, 
God's will is good. You never have to worry about how things will eventually turn out if you pursue God's agenda. Because his will is good. It is good by definition because God is good. And we're told in Paul, by Paul in his letter to the Romans, the, second, or the 12th chapter, the second verse, that God's will is good. He writes, Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. God has a perfect will. It is good. Now, having said that God's will is good, I need you to understand that that does not mean that you will always understand God's will, that you will always like God's will, or that God's will will unfold in ways that are easy. As a matter of fact, I think you can expect that that will not be the case. Many times, God's plan is quite difficult. Pick up your cross follow after me. Deny yourself. Go this way. Die to self. Go to the end of the line. Serve. Think about others before yourself. Those things are not easy for people like us who are broken and selfish. But God is more concerned with our holiness than he is with our happiness. He's more concerned with our character than he is with our comfort. So sometimes God's will is hard by design because we're going to be broken in those difficult moments. We're going to be melted down like gold so the impurities can rise to the top. Having said that God's will is good, I also need you to understand that that doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. This gets a little bit complicated, but what we need to understand is that uh, there is an all-powerful God. And, and he is ultimately in control. And he is good. But not everything that happens is good. Because he has given us freedom. It's not unlimited freedom by any means. But we have real freedom. And we have the opportunity to make choices. And oftentimes we make wrong choices. Selfish choices. Sinful choices. And the results of those choices are real pain and suffering. Things God would not choose for us. Things God tries to protect us from. But we have real options. And so we have real pain. There, is real, there are real troubles out there. There are things that are horrible out there. Not everything that happens is good. Now, God could stop this. Again, this, is, this gets to be pretty heady stuff. God is ultimately in charge. But, but there is what theologians will sometimes refer to as God's direct will or his active will, the things that he's going to cause. And then there's God's permissive will, where he just sort of gives us latitude. And additionally, this is even more complicated by the realization that in ways that are profound and mysterious, that, that sort of go beyond our labor grade to comprehend, he is able to redeem bad choices. Right? Somehow we're told, Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together for the good of those who love God. 
And we see Joseph when, he, when he's standing there and his brothers who had sold him into slavery and they've now come back, they don't recognize him. He's a big muckety-muck in the Egyptian hierarchy and they've come to him asking for food because there's a famine in the land and they stand before him. They don't recognize him. When he tells them who he is, they think they're dead and his response is to say, no, you meant this for evil, but, but God is using this for good. God can write straight with the crooked lines of our lives. It, it is a mystery. We, we can't understand it. Complicated point. But the point I'm trying to make right now is not that complicated. God's will is good. God's will is good. You should want God's will in your life. There shouldn't be any reluctance ever for you to say, okay, God, what I really want is this over here, but nevertheless, your will be done. Because God's will is good. We're, we're fools if we don't step back and realize that there is an a, a all-powerful, holy, righteous creator with, with, who is willing to adopt us into his family and give us the permission to call him Father and wants to steer and guide and direct our lives. And we have the opportunity to say, you know what? <laughs> you be in charge. Here's a plan. You drive. You choose. I mean, it, it's, it's ironic, but we, we tend to think that we know better about how to live our life. C.S. Lewis, who, in one, uh, one of the things that he was writing, makes the point that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God eventually says, okay, your will be done. Lewis says in a, in a different place in his sermon, uh, The Weight of Glory, he writes, and it, it, this is just an amazing way to make the point that, that God, what God wants for us is good and better than what we can imagine and better than what we want for ourselves. He, he writes this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God's will for us is better than our will for ourselves. There should be no reluctance for us to say, God, be God. Show up. Your plan. I'm in. I'll follow. God's will be done. By the way, just as an aside, not one of my points, but, but something I think that needs to be stated. The, the real question is not whether or not God has a will or whether or not that will is going to be accomplished. It certainly will be. It can't be thwarted. The real question is not even whether God's will is good, even when we can't understand it. The real question is whether or not we're going to sign on. The real question becomes, are we going to invest our life on the right side of history or not? I would submit to you that the, that the issue that we face is not fundamentally different than the issue that confronted Esther. You might remember this story, the book of Esther. It opens, Xerxes is the king, and he throws a six-month-long party. And at the end of the six months, 
Uh, he, he wants to have the last week be the biggest and the best, and so it's the best wine and all the gold. And then he calls for his wife to come out and to dance and to entertain his friends. And I, I think it's ge- generally best to think about the Xerxes and his friends sort of like you would think about um, college fraternity guys, because that's sort of the mindset that goes on here. And uh, his wife says to Xerxes, I'm not coming out to dance for your drunken friends. And uh, so Xerxes says, okay, well then, a pox on you. You're banished from my sight forever. Uh, A wise, thoughtful guy. And so shortly after that, he misses his wife. And so his friends say, hey, here's a plan. Why don't you get a new wife? We'll have a beauty contest, and you'll pick from the most beautiful of all the women in the land. And so this beauty contest is held, and Esther, a a Jewish woman who's living there in Persia, this is part of, uh, Persia has now defeated Babylon. Most of the Jews have gone back to the Holy Land. Some of them are remaining uh, in in, uh, Babylon, now Persia. So so Esther is, is there. She enters this beauty contest and ends up winning, and so little orphan Esther becomes the queen, and she's being shepherded by her uncle, a guy by the name of Mordecai. There's another side plot that goes on. Uh, Haman, the the dark villain, and he wants to to kill all the Jews. He particularly doesn't like Mordecai for various reasons. And so he issues this plot and gets Xerxes to declare this decree that all the Jews are going to be killed on this date. And so Mordecai, Esther's uncle, goes to Esther and says, okay, you're on, right? You have been uniquely positioned to step in right now. You need to intercede on behalf of your people. You need to go to the king and get him to stop this crazy idea that he has that he's going to have all of the Jews killed. But Esther says, well, you know what? Uh, Xerxes is not uh, the, the best thinking person you've been around. He's a bit impetuous. He's got this decree that says that if he doesn't, uh, he doesn't recognize me when I walk in, I'm going to be killed. I don't, it's too risky. He hasn't called for me in a long time. I'm not, I'm not able to do it. Wish I could help. Sorry, I can't. Too hard. At which point Mordecai writes back and he says to his niece, do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. In other words, hey, Esther, understand this. God's will will be done. We don't know how, but God's plan will be accomplished. The question before you is not whether or not God is going to be able to do what God wants to do. The question is whether or not you're going to be on the right side of this issue. And that's the question that we face. Are we going to invest our life, our time, our resources? Are we going to think and live and and try to give and serve in ways that, that expand the kingdom of God or not? God's will will be done. We have an opportunity to be part of that. That's the question that we're confronted with. Are we headed that way or not? Point number three. God's will is not hidden. Most of what we need to know is already in print. Now, I don't want to suggest 
that everything that God knows or all of God's plans are clear to us. They're, they're certainly not. We're told that we're going to live a life of faith. We're not going to walk by sight but by faith. And furthermore, just to point out sort of the obvious, when you read the Old Testament, it's pretty clear that even when the Jews knew exactly what they were supposed to do, they didn't often do it. And even when we know exactly what God's plan is, we often don't do it. This isn't as big a deal as you think. And most of what we need to know in order to live God-honoring, faith-filled lives is clear already. It's already in writing. What is the will of God for you? The will of God for you is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you would love your neighbor as yourself. The will of God for you is that you would keep his commandments. The will of God for you is that you would share the story that the tomb is empty and you can have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. The will of God for you is that you would care for the poor and the oppressed. The will of God for you is that you would love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The will of God for you is pretty clear, right? That we would understand that that our resources are not ultimately ours. They're all on loan. Everything on the asset side of our ledger is his. We're just temporary stewards, and we're to invest it in the things that that advance his work. It's it's not hard to know what the will of God is. It's just incredibly hard to do it. Most of what we need to know in order to live faithful lives is pretty clear. But, you might counter, there have been times, Mike, when I have desperately Wanted to know what to do. I am at a crossroads. The issue is important. It's not clear in here. I can't find anywhere in here where it tells me whether or not I'm supposed to do this or not. And and I desperately want to do whatever God wants me to do. And I can't figure it out. What about those times? Okay. Well, I'm likely a bit of a contrarian here. But let me first of all acknowledge that... Those are real moments, and they are desperate, and we are humble, and we are seeking God, and, and there are, I think, some things that we can and should do. I think we desperately seek God, and we, we confess sin, and we pray, and, and we study Scripture, seeing whether or not there's direction there for us. And additionally, I think we use the minds that God has given us, common sense, and we try to think out what the best path would be. And additionally, I think we go seek the wise counsel of other people, right? We don't have to make every mistake ourselves. Let other people help us so that we don't have to. And additionally, I think we, we recognize that there might be some providential circumstances that we need to account for. And I think we are quiet and we, we, we see whether or not God may speak to us and and give us some direction it would always have to be in compliance with with scripture but but we open ourselves up and and we seek the counsel of others and we study God's word there's a there are things that we can do and I've been there in in big moments right where you go through that and you wait and you pray and oftentimes there's no clear answer and you got to take a step. And, and I think at that time, you take the step. See, I, I guess 
I'm a little leery of, of the formulas because I think they start to come across as formulas and they sort of assume that God is holding back his will and you've got to pick his brain to figure it out. And they assume also that God has, a, has an opinion on the matter and I'm not always certain that he cares. I think that Augustine is probably on to something where he says, love God, do, do as you please. But the real issue that I have here is that, that this idea of trying to, to seek God so we can get an answer strikes me sort of as an exercise in missing the point. The point is to seek God. And that's not a means to an end. That's the end. I'm not certain that God, when he sees that we're there saying, God, I want whatever you want. I want to do whatever you, I have been brought to this point. I recognize that I don't have the plan. I don't have the answers. And I'm here. I think that's, I think that's the win. That's the point. And, and, and we're not seeking God to get an answer. We should be seeking the face of God. We should just be seeking him. And that as opposed to framing this up as, as trying to discover the will of God, I think that we just need to see that day in and day out, we're just to seek Him and to love Him and to, and to serve Him and to not worry so much that if we're walking down that path day in and day out, that we're going to end up wide of the mark of where He would have us. Think the goal And this is the fourth point, is that there's not really a secret to discovering God's will. What we're supposed to do is simply live faith-filled lives and recognize and acknowledge him in all that we do. And to be humble and, and to recognize that he's God and his plan is better. And I may not understand it, and I may not always like it, but what I can choose to do is to seek him again and to yield my life to him and to do all that I can to live in obedience to all that I know. And that's the win. Maybe I can summarize it this way. There's perhaps three kinds of people. There are people who who live for themselves, there are people who live for others, and there are people who live for God, right? So it's my will, it's their will, it's his will. It's a a self-pleaser, a people-pleaser, or a God-pleaser. I would submit to you that we want to be God-pleasers. To the extent that we can figure that out, we simply want to study, to pray, to be obedient day in and day out, and trust that he will guide our paths and to be faithful with whatever it is that he places in front of us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to to share our burdens and to share our desires before you, but that you have instructed and guided us to ask you with everything that we've got for you to do your will. And that is what we ultimately want. We don't always get that 
in, in our less than cogent moments, it's easy for us to get wide of the mark. And yet, Lord God, we have been coached by your Son. We have his divine word. And we see that you are a good God with a good will that will ultimately come to fruition. May we be men and women who can pray with an ever-increasing vigilance and gusto, Lord God, be God in my life. Your plan, your will, that's what I want. I want to faithfully do whatever it is that you call me to do. Guide and direct our steps. Lord God, through your Spirit, guide and direct our paths. We trust our lives to you, decisions big and small. We ask that you would bless us in Christ's name. Amen.